Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Median. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, this is the last Sunday before Christmas, and so that means we're actually wrapping up our, our Advent season series, kind of. Uh, since next Sunday is uh, the day after Christmas, we're going to do sort of like a bonus episode, right, for this season. You could look at it like that. Um, but uh, this season, the Advent season, uh, is that's what we've historically called it as a Christian church, like these weeks leading up to Christmas. <laughs> And as we established a few weeks ago, Advent simply means arrival. It means arrival or, 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 or coming. And in on the one hand, we, we, we call it Advent, we call it arrival because on the one hand, we remember an arrival that happened about 2,000 years ago. The maker of men became a man himself to save us from sin to save us from brokenness and usher in the kingdom of God. And so there was an arrival that already happened. But then in Advent, we also look forward to an arrival that is yet to happen. We look forward to the second coming of Jesus when all things will be made new and all evil, all sin, and even death itself will be no more. And that is what this Advent season, that is what this Christmas season is truly about. And just to be clear, like I'm a big, I'm a big fan of, of the Christmas parties and all the Christmas flair, right, with the decorations and the gatherings, spinning those Christmas records on vinyl, watching classic Christmas movies like It's a Wonderful Life, Elf, um, that we saw on stage a little bit ago. I hope he found his dad, right? <laughs> Die Hard, movies like that, right? Like I'm here for all of that. In fact, many of you were at our Christmas party last night, and, 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 and you know, if you were there, you know, we, like, we had a blast together. It's, it's fun to celebrate with the gatherings and all the, all the Christmas activities, but at some point, we need to push through all that stuff and consider, why is this season even a thing? Why is it that Advent is so pronounced? Why is it that the, that the world just stops and, and takes a break from the normal, regular flow of things to, to celebrate this holiday season? What is the truer meaning of Christmas? And what is it that Jesus already accomplished? What is it that he promised to do? And so Advent is traditionally broken up into four parts, hope, peace, Love and joy, we've had a sermon for every single one of those, and, and to, to, tonight, this afternoon, we look at joy. Um, 
let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll start walking our way through the beginning of Isaiah 9. Uh, Father, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful for this church family. Um, God, I pray for my wife and kids and just everybody else that might be streaming online right now through our, our streaming platforms uh, who is uh, sick. Uh, pray, God, that you would heal them, that you would protect them and our families. We pray, God, that as we walk through your word together, that we might be maybe reminded uh, not only newly and, 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 and uh, afresh, but that we would be um, maybe confronted in, in ways more powerful than before, the significance of the hope that Christmas brings. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. And so to start us off, we're going to work through a passage in Isaiah 9. One of the most well-known of Old Testament scriptures, uh, one of the most famous scriptures on the Christmas stories, and it's one of my favorite passages to dive into uh, around this time of year. Um, you guys probably received cards this, this year with the, the verses, like, to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. Like, that's the passage we're looking at. And just to give you some context, Isaiah, the prophet, he's, he's writing to God's people this passage during a time of great suffering, during a time of great anguish, during a time where they're wondering, like, where is God? Is he still involved? Does he still care? There's a spiritual darkness, uh, this, this, this longing that they, that's just sort of like enveloped them for generations. And they're longing for joy. They're longing for hope. They're longing for light. And so here's our first point. I want us to look at the need for joy. The need for joy. So again, Israel, God's nation in the Old Testament, their condition was that they were feeling broken. They were feeling beat up. They were, they were longing for hope, longing for joy. Israel was sort of like a microcosm of a world that had been destroyed and ravaged by sin. And really, that's what spiritual darkness is, all right? Just to establish that on the front end, that's what spiritual darkness is. Spiritual darkness is basically anywhere where the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of God is not reigning, is not supreme, is not ultimate. That's what spiritual darkness is. And so look at verse 1 with me. It says, it says there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. This is talking about Israel as a nation and her anguish. And in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, remember, this is in the Old Testament. This is a prophecy speaking about Jesus' coming, his first advent. And you might recognize Galilee of the nations because the region of Galilee is where Jesus would eventually go to do his ministry on earth right, along the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's helpful to know some history about that region right here. Because when this was written, the world was already broken, was already, like, just reeling from the effects of sin. Israel was already suffering, but this particular region, Galilee, seemed to have, like, the worst of it. 
They seem to have the worst of it. It was in the northern part of Israel, in the middle of this deep, deep valley. And what would happen is that back then, every time that Jerusalem would get invaded by enemy forces, the enemy, the easiest way in would be to like slide in from the north through that valley between the mountain pass and, and the, the first community there, which was Galilee, would get destroyed first because it was like the, the first stop on the way. Verse 5 also has this language about just marching in battle and these bloody garments from war and from turmoil. It really paints this disturbing picture of the suffering and the violence that would, that would go on there. And so this is a region that has been marked by generations and centuries of, of death, of danger, of suffering, of restlessness. No one, no one wanted to have to live there. Everyone knew that about this region. No one wanted to have to visit there. There were no Airbnbs set up like in the Galilee region. I want you to look that the darkness and the sin that we see in Galilee is just a small snapshot. Just a small snapshot of the condition that we find the greater world in. I said before, if you want, if you want to look at a snapshot of, of you know, what does what does Orange County beach life look at? Like everyone thinks, everyone like out, even outside of Orange County, like you think of like Laguna Beach, right? Back then, if you wanted a snapshot of what a life and region of despair looked like, like everybody thought of Galilee. So this darkness we read about in Galilee is just. This microcosm, this, this snapshot of the kind of brokenness that you just see all around us in the world. Look, even the most, even the most hard-hearted skeptic of the Christian faith has to admit and has to reckon with the fact that this world does not feel the way it should be, Right? Look, we all need an answer for that. Why is it that the world doesn't feel the way it should? Why is it that we have to admit that something's gone wrong, that things are not as they should be? C.S. Lewis says it's likely that we were made for another world. That's why we feel that impulse. Another world, not a broken one, but a renewed one. Not a world plagued by the darkness of human history, uh, by the travesty of sin, but a world that's been illuminated by the light of Christ, that's been healed by his touch. That's the world we were made for. That's the life that we long for. And that's why from the very moment in the beginning of the Bible that we read about, in the very uh, beginning of human history, the moment that the universe was fractured by sin in Genesis 3, God, he, he begins to lay out and unfold his plan, which he already had long before. He starts to lay out his plan, unfold his plan to send a savior who would rescue us from the mess of our world from the mess of our own lives, from the sin in our hearts, and all that's broken in creation. If we want to understand the true joy that Christmas brings, we need to look past the gifts and the gatherings. Not in a way that diminishes how wonderful those things can be, but we need to reckon with the fact that our world is not as it should be. 
that all the places that the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of God are not reigning, all those places of spiritual darkness, God wants the light of the kingdom to shine. That's what Christmas is about. And we need to reckon with that if we want to really understand the good news of Christmas. Fleming Rutledge says it this way. She says, the authentically hopeful Christmas spirit, notice she says the authentically hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death, but directly at it. Otherwise... The message, the Christmas message, is cheap and false. Advent begins in the dark. And it's that dark spot that we read about, that we just read about in Isaiah 9. And it's this dark spot that has become ground zero for the light of the world, the region of Galilee. Let's move on to point number two, where we see the source of our joy. You see, it's against the backdrop of this darkness that God gives good news through the prophet Isaiah. He says, look, light's going to come to this dark region. You think this is the worst of the worst? Well, this is going to be ground zero for the best of the best to come. Read verse 2 again with me. In verse 2, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. So right there in the middle of this dark spot on the world's map is the landing zone for the light of the world. I want you to, to, to notice that Isaiah is speaking in the past tense here, right? Did you notice that? It says, he says, the people who walked in darkness, they have seen a great light. Uh, on them has light shown. He's speaking about Jesus's coming in the future to them as though it already happened. Now, why is that? It's because he's, he's using here this ancient sort of literary device that you see all throughout the Old Testament that, that uh, scholars call the prophetic perfect. The prophetic perfect. It's when you talk about events that are on the horizon, like coming up ahead, as, but you're talking about them as though they're already like in the rear view mirror. And it's a way of saying, hey, look, this thing I'm talking about, it's basically as good as done. It's going to happen. There's no way to stop it. It's unstoppable. This is as good as done. Now, why he can, can he say that? Why can Isaiah use the prophetic perfect when talking about this, this light shining in Galilee? Because this is a sovereign plan of God. You can't stop the sovereign plan of God. It's as good as done. Look, some of us in this room, we're, we're, we're feeling... We're feeling the effects of a world that is tainted by sin. We're feeling the effects of a world that is darkened, a world that is broken, a world that is not as it should be. Maybe you've had a hard, a hard year, hard season of life. Maybe your family is going through difficulty, this year, like whatever it is, you're feeling broken down, troubled, heartbroken, sad. But in the midst of, in the midst of those ditches, in the midst of those circumstances, 
I want to ask, like, what promises, what promises in God's word are comfort to you? What are those promises? What promises in God's word are comfort to you? What truths bring you joy? What comforting truth, though you can't see it or feel it, you know it to be true, and so you cling to it? Those of you who know my wife, Alyssa, know she, she's, she's great at this. If you've ever had the privilege of sitting down with her as a friend or seeking advice from her across the table from her, whenever she's counseling someone, whenever she counsels me, like she'll often ask this question, what truth from God's word are you clinging to in this moment? She loves asking that question. Like what, what truth, what promise are you resting on, are you clinging to? What promises are you meditating on, meditating on and trusting in? Like it could be that you're struggling to believe that God is great and in control. And so like anxiety and fear starts, starts creeping in. It could be that you're struggling to believe that God is enough to satisfy, truly satisfy your soul. And so you find yourself turning to your, your usual vices it could be that you're struggling to believe that, that God, knowing all that he knows about you, could actually love you and forgive you. And so you start worrying that salvation is based on your performance rather than Jesus and his grace. Or maybe you're struggling to believe that God is with you in your, in your pain with you in your hardships and in your, in your suffering, wondering if he'll ever leave you or forsake you. Whatever it is for you, like what truth are you struggling to believe that you need to cling to, that you need to reach for, that you need to lean on and rest on? You see, the very sure promises of hope. That's what God provides here through Isaiah. God's people are receiving this letter while they're in deep spiritual darkness. Yet God says to them, on you, light has shone. Light has dawned. And that is the message of the Christmas story. See, unless God revealed himself through Jesus, unless God's light shone through the life and ministry of Jesus, unless God sent his son into the world, then there would be no light for the world. There would be no joy to the world. But he says, on them light has shone. I want you to notice that it says, on them light has shone. It gives us a sense that, that this hope that we need, this, this joy that we long for, this light that we want to switch on, it comes from beyond us, right? It says, on them light has shown. It comes from, this is God stepping in. It's God coming down to us. This is God breaking into our situation, our broken situation, to bring light from the outside, 
Why do we need that? It's because darkness can't illuminate darkness, can it? See, the same sin that broke the world resides in every single one of our hearts. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. And so we have no hope to save ourselves. Hope needs to come from outside of us. It needs to come from elsewhere. And that's why Jesus came. That's why the son came. This is how much God loves us. This is how much God loves us. It's been said that the measure of God's love for us is revealed by one, the degree of his sacrifice to save us from sin, and two, the degree of our unworthiness when he died to save us. And we see the measure of that sacrifice in the Christmas story. We see the measure of that sacrifice in the incarnation. God gave not good advice, not a new path forward. He gave his only son, the Messiah, the great one, the king of kings, the one who spoke all things into existence, the one who holds it all together by the sheer volition of his will, the one that demons tremble when they hear his name, the one that, that, that angels sing and swirl about when they want to bring him glory, when they want to worship him. This great king of kings, this great lord of lords, Christ the Messiah was born in a manger so that he could one day march to a cross where he would suffer a crucifixion death in our place. The Bible says that even while we were yet sinners, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. What does that tell us? That tells us that we were totally unworthy, totally unworthy. And so the only explanation for God's sacrifice for us has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the riches of his grace. See, the Christmas story is not a response to how lovely that we are, because the Bible is very clear that we're, at the core, quite unlovely. You know, the reason for the Christmas story is actually an overflow, not of how lovely we are, but an overflow of God's worth in spite of how unlovely we are. And that's what we see in Isaiah 9. We see that light has shown it's not a light that anyone developed. It's not one that some man discovered. No, this is a light that found them, that pursued them, that shone on them. This is God intervening in our broken world. This is God, perfect God, erupting into our situation to bring light from the outside. That's Christmas, that God came down, that the maker of men became a man. Now, how does the people in darkness respond to this? How does people covered in spiritual darkness, how do we respond to this? How do we respond when the light of the gospel shines on our darkened hearts? Verse 3 of Isaiah 9 tells us, 
The answer is joy. Verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation. This is speaking about just the spread of the gospel. The promise that was originally given to, to Abraham's family that was passed on down to uh, uh, the nation of Israel and is now inherited by the New Testament church. Isaiah 9 verse 3 says, you, God, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy, and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil." gives us this word picture there. Now, most of us know nothing about the joys of farming and harvesting, but what we do share with the farmer is the joy that we feel when we see the fruits of our labor, right? When you work hard and then you start to reap a harvest, the one thing that you've waited for and longed for, wondering, is this ever going to pay off? Like the joy of getting a Christmas bonus that you didn't expect at the end of a long year of hard work, the joy of getting married after a season of waiting and engagements. If you're, uh, if you're like an, an author or uh, an artist or musician, it's the joy of like holding the first advanced copy of your work. For teacher, it's the joy of reaching like tenure status. It's the joy of receiving something that you've longed for, that you've waited for. If you're a Christian this morning, then that is your story. That is part of our story. You've been called into the joy of this light. What has been worked for has finally arrived. And the good news is it's not the product of your hard work because your hard work can never be enough. It's the perfect, satisfying work of God the Son in our place for our sins. And if you're with him, then you've been called into the joy of the light. Here's how Peter says it in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Speaking to a group of Christians, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, this passage tells us that the great light that humanity longs for is a person. Who is this person? He's the one that brings light to the darkness and the one who brings joy to the longing. Who is this great king of light, the one who will punish the darkness and restore all things to its renewed future? Who is this great savior? Isaiah 9 verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who Christmas is about. This is who we celebrate this Christmas season. It's the day that God came. Christmas is the day that God came and dwelled among us. It's the day that God came down to pursue us. It's the day that light has shone. And so let's conclude with point number three, the identity of joy. Let's unpack the identity of this child of light. 
walking through verse six, which says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, what does this mean? I know a lot of us are skeptical of that word government these days, right? So what's the point of that phrase, the government shall be upon his shoulder? It's to say that the baby in that manger would be simply the one who would rule over all things. That's what it's talking about. He would govern in the truest and fullest and most beautiful sense of that word. Everything would be under his sovereign rule. Now, why is that important? Because all of his promises, all of the prophecies, all of the the promises of hope are only as good as how effective his power and rule is. And so if Jesus isn't sovereign, then how would you know that there's hope to be found in the most difficult of circumstances? If Jesus is sovereign, how do you know that there's light on the other side? You can have that assurance because this king rules. He has power. He can deliver all that he's promised. And it says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What this tells us is that wisdom, true wisdom is a person. He's the source of all that is wise, all that is good, all that is true. And he will be faithful to guide us towards holiness, to guide us back to God. He knows what we need to be saved. He knows what we need to grow in the grace of God. He's a wonderful counselor. He's truth embodied. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's wisdom. Put on flesh. Are you listening to him? See, this is good news to us because we live in this tension between the now and the not yet. In other words, we can experience a lot of the beauties of salvation that Jesus purchased for us 2,000 years ago, but there's still things that we long for, right? Like we still struggle with sin. We want sin to end. We want evil to disappear. We, we, we need to know like how to be wise in the here and the now. So having Jesus as a wonderful counselor is good news to us because we need wisdom for how to navigate the bumpy roads through the peaks and valleys of this life. We seek counsel from so many different fleeting places. But Jesus, the creator of the universe, he's our wonderful counselor. He's also called mighty God. Mighty God, this tells us that Jesus will be a warrior God. He is the mighty one. He is great in power. This is the God who uh, defeats all his enemies, the perfect judge of the earth in flesh. And do you know what the word mighty means? Right here, specifically, it's the Hebrew word gibor, which means like hero or champion or like a knight in shining armor. This is to say like Jesus is like the absolute beast right? Like, he's the one who beats all odds to save his people. This is a way of saying that that Jesus is our champion God. There's a big takeaway here because this is the first time in all the Old Testament prophetic writings, the first time that we found out that this Savior is not just a man who's going to show up and be like another earthly king like David was 
or to show up and be like another earthly prophet like Moses was. This is the first time in the Old Testament scriptures that we see that God himself is going to come in the flesh. God himself, the way, the truth, and the life is coming to fix all that is wrong, is coming to crush the head of the enemy. He's coming to bless the nations of the earth. He's coming to expand the breadth of his family, the scope of his glory, the boundaries of his kingdom. He's gonna solve this himself, the incarnation of God the Son, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah continues and calls the Savior, the everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Now, this could be confusing because you're like, I thought Jesus was the Son. Why is he called the everlasting Father? And that's because this passage is not so much talking about his nature as God the Father, but more about like Jesus' protective responsibility for his own. Jesus takes care of his own the way that a father is supposed to take care of his own. He's the kind of shepherd that leaves the 99 to go after the one wayward sheep. Sin severs our relationship with God. Sin alienates us from him, but Jesus reconciles us and restores that relationship. That means like when we pray, we don't pray to God as a distant king on a distant throne. We pray to him as a father who gives us his listening ear. Lastly, Isaiah calls Jesus in this passage the Prince of Peace. He's not only the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, but he's also the Prince of Peace. In other words, he's going to be the one who is going to bring peace for God's people. And again, when we use that word peace, we're talking like in the fullest sense of that word. The word for peace, as Oscar mentioned a couple weeks ago, is, is shalom. Shalom is about a full peace. It's like a full and like spiritual and physical flourishing. It reminds us that Jesus isn't just here to fix us on the inside and to rework our inside, but his saving work is far more cosmic. Where there was once death, Jesus is going to bring life. Where there was once hunger, Jesus satisfies. Where there was once alienation from God, Jesus reconciles. Where there was once anxiety and sadness, Jesus brings inner peace. Where there was once brokenness and devastation, Jesus makes all things new. You can't help but hear the echo of Revelation here. When John says, uh, quotes Jesus in Revelation 21, when he's going to say, behold, I have come to make all things new. See, that's what the delight of joy is all about. That's what it's all about. This isn't a vain wish. This is a joyful expectation that all things will be made new. See, in Advent and at Christmas, we recognize that Jesus came. Came. God came. He really came. He came, he walked the same earthly ground that you and I walk on. He came, came as a wonderful counselor, he came as the mighty God, he came as everlasting father, he came as the prince of peace. 
And I love how this passage ends in verse 7. I don't think I have a slide for this. But in verse 7, it says, His kingdom will have no end, and that the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. There's a weight to that sentence. It's as if God's saying, like, hey, look, my zeal, my passion will accomplish this. It's like God's saying, look, I got this. Don't doubt this. I got this. His passion drives him to action. God's love is not just this passive emotion, but his love is like a settled decision from before human history to actively move on behalf of his people. You see, up to this point in Isaiah 9, up to this point, God's people have heard nothing but centuries of silence. All Israel could hear when they got this good news was the noise of their present issues. But here, God says, no, the time has come. And he speaks hope into them. So let me ask you, do you feel like you feel like maybe God has gone silent, like God is distant? Or do you feel that he's near? Let this passage tell you that he is near. That light has shown, that Jesus has come. And that because of his love, a great light has dawned, signaling the end of the shadow of death and signaling the beginning of a new hope. The question I want to leave you with this morning is, do you have the joy of Christmas? I'm not talking about sentimental joy, like mushy, emotional joy. I'm talking about like joy that sticks, joy that endures. Christmas season can sometimes be crazy. It can be busy. It can even be depressing. But do you have a joy that sticks? in the midst of all that, when people are around you, do they get a sense that you say, there's real joy for me in Christ? And do they get a sense that if they're around you, that maybe they can learn about this joy too? In a moment, we're gonna take communion. Oscar's gonna walk us through receiving communion. And communion is a like a tangible taste of joy, a tangible taste of the gospel, reminding us that Jesus is after our whole selves. He didn't just come to to, to heal us spiritually, but to make our bodies new, to make creation new. We look forward to the greater joy to come. Verse six again tells us the good news that a child has been born. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His kingdom will never end, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.